Second Samuel chapter nine. This is the reading of God's holy word. <clears throat> and David said, "Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake?" Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, "Are you Ziba?" And he said, "I am your servant." And the king said. Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, "What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I?" <clears throat> then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, "All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him." And shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat, but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, "According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do." So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. May we turn also to the New Testament? We are at Ephesians chapter four, verses thirty-one and thirty-two. So the text for this morning is Ephesians four thirty-one and thirty-two. We will begin reading. From verse twenty-five、uh, through verse thirty-two, <clears throat> this also is God's holy word. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath. And anger and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. 
May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our loving God, we thank you, Father, for you are merciful and kind, even to the wicked and the ungrateful. Father, we thank you for you show your kindness to us uh, so powerfully, so clearly through your son, Jesus Christ. And we acknowledge, Father, that our forgiveness comes from you, not because of anything we've done, not because we stand before you by by ourselves, but it only comes to us uh, through your son. And Father, help us to realize that even as we have been forgiven a great debt by the perfect work of your son, Jesus, Father, we pray that we would also be forgiving towards others who sin against us. Father, you have taught us in your word that he who has been forgiven little loves little. Father, remind us that we indeed have been forgiven much and that we ought to love much. We thank you, Father, for the reminders in your word that we often need. Turn us away from a legal spirit. Father, we pray that you would grant us joy in the Holy Spirit. Remind us of the new life that we have in Christ. And Father, if any are here who are overcome by the roots of bitterness, we pray, Father, that you would do a mighty work, that you would remind us of the hope that we have in the gospel. Father, we pray in thanks that you forgive sinners, that you graciously receive sinners. And Father, we pray that you would grow us in this area, that we would turn away from hateful ways, but instead that we would be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as you have forgiven us in Jesus Christ. And may your Son, our Lord Jesus, be exalted, and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Here, we think about the phrase, just desserts. Uh, Desserts, with one S, uh, is, you think about dessert or desert, uh, one S, desert, but there's an archaic usage of dessert, meaning what you deserve. There's plays on this where just dessert uh, is, is what we have as our due. So people often, when they're arguing, with the, when they sense injustice, they're talking about their just dessert. People make a play on this by adding extra S, and you might have a store called Just Desserts. You, you see where this is going. But oftentimes, we are arguing with others, and the, the argument, the plea is always, I, I ought to receive what, I, what is rightfully due to me. This is the plea of Just Desserts. If only I can be treated as I deserve. But here, you can understand that a non-Christian can argue this Just Desserts day in and day out. But, is it right for a Christian to be arguing for his just deserts? It seems like there's something amiss, something wrong, if a Christian is arguing for his just deserts all the time, but when it comes to his dealings with God, we need to ask ourselves, does he have a completely wrong view about his dealings with God, or is he make a completely different exception for himself that I, I will deal with God and he, he will deal with me in a manner of mercy and grace, but as far as my dealing with everyone else, then it's a matter of just deserts. Here, perhaps it's a question that you and I ought to be asking ourselves. Are we infected with a legal spirit of dealing with people 
and with others. If there is the case that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, which I pray that you do, you will come to realize the legal spirit cannot exist there. No man deals with God and is forgiven by any just deserts. There is, from God, grace through his Son, Jesus Christ. And that relationship, that transformation, that kindness shown through Jesus Christ to you as a sinner, to me as a sinner, should permeate every relationship of our lives. Should permeate every relationship in our lives. Here we think about God's desire for his bride, the church. That he presents to us our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in all his glory. And our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, desires that his bride, the church, would be faithful and would be beautiful. And part of this for us means that we are dying to our old self. That the church is being made anew. The church is not made of perfect people because the church herself is also imperfect. But God's desire is that this bride would be transformed. Transformed by the good news of the gospel. Transformed by the power of God's love. By the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Here we think about our need for change. That you and I must first acknowledge that there must be a need for change. We must acknowledge the source of that change. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. By the, the love shown to us from God through his son, Jesus Christ. And then in this passage, Ephesians 4, 25 to 32, we hear a bit about how we must change. What we ought to be. What we need to give up. And what we ought to change to. So the truth that we see in this passage, Ephesians 4, 32, uh, sorry, 31 and 32, is your new life in Christ means forsaking hatred, but loving and forgiving others because God forgave you for Christ's sake. Your new life in Christ means forsaking hatred, but loving and forgiving others because God forgave you for Christ's sake. <clears throat> Here we'll look at this in two simple points. The first, put away all hatred from verse 31. And the second point, put on love and forgiveness from verse 32. So the first point, put away all hatred from verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Here, we think about how the Apostle Paul has transitioned away from what God has done for you in Christ, what God has done through the Holy Spirit, what God the Father has planned for you regarding your salvation. Uh, from Ephesians 1 to 3, this is the indicatives to the imperatives from in Ephesians 4 through 6. That we ought no longer walk as the Gentiles do. <coughs> that if you are honest with yourself, you will acknowledge that this is exactly the way we once lived. In bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and all malice. That this is the lifestyle of the past. This is the lifestyle before Christ. And that lifestyle must change. That lifestyle changes because you have a new operating system in you. That is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's power. The Holy Spirit's transformation. You have a new Lord in your life. That is the Lord Jesus. This means that anger and falsehood come to an end. That sinful pride that fuels this anger must die. 
that stealing, the old way of acquiring for ourselves, must come to an end. And that today we have in verses 31 and 32 all manner of hate. You think about these six vices, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. Those all have to do some degree with the, the greater topic, the greater subject of hate. That these must come to an end. And instead, that love and forgiveness must be part of our lives. Must be reflecting the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> now when we look at these six vices... We first consider bitterness that the Apostle Paul mentions here in verse 31. Bitterness is the result of lingering resentment. So resentment comes first. So if there's some perceived mistreatment or injustice, that you think someone has wronged you, it's not necessarily that they have wronged you. You think they've wronged you. That there is a perceived injustice, there's a resentment, and perhaps there's other happenings, other interactions, and that continues to grow. That resentment grows to bitterness. There's a keeping of accounts on others. That keeping of accounts is keeping a list of wrongs, whether it's mental or it's actually written. Uh, that these accounts of others uh, added up leads to bitterness. And this bitterness... Uh, is a terrible thing. It should not be part of the life of a Christian. But we live in real life. The reality is it's there. The scriptures warn about bitterness. Hebrews twelve fifteen. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. <clears throat> Consider for a moment the warnings about this root of bitterness. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. If there's a root of bitterness in your heart, it will prevent you from obtaining the grace of God. It seems odd that, that we would be watering and fertilizing this root of bitterness on one hand, and on the other hand, we're grasping for the grace of God. This is completely contrary to God's design. Here, we see also the warning that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. You see the effect of it, that a root of bitterness uh, won't remain a root. I think about the, the burdocks in my backyard. I've tried all kinds of things to kill them. I'm trying not to use the good old-fashioned Roundup because I have chickens back there. don't want to poison them. <clears throat> so I've used uh, various combinations of vinegar and salt and dish soap uh, and, and the like, natural things. And these burdock roots are deep. They run really deep, and they're really thick. And apparently, certain Asian cultures, they, they actually eat this, this root as a vegetable. And, you know, you, you, you spray the stuff where you cut it off at ground level, uh, and it slows them down a bit. But with that root there, these big giant leaves keep popping up. And that's the root of bitterness, that every once in a while, uh, something happens, an interaction, and it keeps popping up. And that many become defiled means that the root of bitterness never remains with one person. That it affects others around the person. There's a taking of sides. There's an insistence on a taking of sides. And it causes great trouble. Be careful about this root of bitterness. Here we also have wrath. <clears throat> wrath is the occasion of outburst of hatred. So it's the explosion. Wrath is what comes out. We see that so clearly in 
the example of 2 Samuel chapter 16, that David is on the run. It's the horrible shame for a king that there is a civil war in his kingdom, and it's led by none other than his own son. That Absalom leads this revolt. David has to flee his, his palace in the middle of the night. And in one scene, you have this man Shimei, who was of the household of Saul. Uh, David had been king for some time. And Shimei apparently had this bottled up anger, this wrath, this bitterness. You think about what would have happened to, uh, to Shimei. All the advantages he would have had as a relative of Saul, he would have lost because there was a new king. And here, there was tragedy. There was hardship. There was shame in the life of David, even as God had prophesied that with David's sin of adultery and murder, that God had said, the sword will never depart from your house. And this is one instance of it. David justly deserved this, that this was part of his discipline. This was part of God's judgment upon him. And Shimei capitalized on that by shouting him, get out, get out, you man of bloodshed, you wicked man. He was throwing dirt. He was throwing uh, rocks and saying all kinds of hateful words. And, and it was one of the sons of Zeruiah, a faithful man, a faithful soldier of David, who said, hey, uh, I know one thing, and that's talking heads stop talking when they're severed from their bodies. So, king, let me go and take off this man's head. And, and, and David there rightly said, no, we're not going to do that. Because here David understood what God had prophesied. Hey, this life of yours, second half of the book of 2 Samuel is going to be the account of the sword never departing from your house. There will be shame for you. There will be suffering. And David said, hey, if this is God's design that this man would curse me, who might have put a stop to that? He understood, in many ways, he rightly deserved it. And we see that explosion of wrath. You think about anger. Anger being rooted in pride. That someone's pride is offended. That you have not given me what I justly deserve. That legal spirit. Pride functions on a legal spirit. Pride is, is what steps in there and says, I would never do that. Others have done that to me. I would never do that. Here, we think even about these six vices. Are you at a place where you're saying, none of those have I ever done, none of those would I ever do. Here, I want to warn you. And I want to say, don't ever say that. No, no sin is beyond us. No, no sin is, is beyond our ability. If you start thinking, hey, I would never do that, then that is going to be the next, next temptation and sin for you. Here we think about clamor. Clamor is a noisy outburst, is a loud shouting, a cry, a crying out. Here, I think about this one example of clamor. There was a restaurant that I liked in California. I often went there with my pastor. And uh, <clears throat> there was one day when... We were eating. The restaurant was very popular. It was completely full during the lunch hour or the lunch time. And there were two chefs in the back. One was carrying a giant pot. And they were shouting at each other. And they came out into the restaurant, walking in between all the tables. And they were shouting at each other all kinds of things. We, we could not understand what they were talking about. 
and, and that's with me being able to speak Chinese, right? They were just shouting at the top of their lungs. The oddity is that here, these two men were at it. I thought one was going to use the pot to injure the other and or throw it at the other and end up hitting some other bystander. But you realize in this situation, a whole restaurant full of people and they were completely oblivious to, hey, do, do you think you could just keep this in the back? No, they couldn't. They were shouting at each other at the top of their lungs amidst all these people. must have been 100, 150 people in the restaurant. And after they passed through and they shouted, they went back to the kitchen. It's as if everyone in the restaurant looked at each other. We said, huh, what was that? And they were, we went back to eating. And, and you think about how in these feuds and these clamors, Nothing else seems to matter but the, the anger and the shouting that you want to get across. We see a similar example, not specific, but uh, dealing with embittered spouses. That when a husband and a wife have had disagreements and uh, animosities for a while, perhaps you've caught this, that out in public, in someone's home, that they will often make these biting, cutting, snide remarks at each other, or they might shout at one another in the presence of others. And to them, it seems completely normal. When normally, a, a healthy couple, if someone made some remark that was insulting or demeaning, that there might even be between the husband and wife a realization, oh, I said that wasn't kind. It was a, my bad, and... I'm sorry, right? As in, we will deal with this later. And they could address it behind closed doors. But when the anger of clamor and the bitterness take root, then whatever gets said at, at home and shouted loudly, it gets seen before others. Here, we continue with the matter of slander. This goes back to verse 25. Therefore, put away all falsehood. But slander is a spreading of, spreading of false reports. <coughs> and this is even what is true, but what is interpreted in the worst possible light. So what could be true, but interpreted in the worst possible light, eventually becomes a falsehood. And perhaps it's, it's with slander that you have your own self-diagnosis. Meaning... It's easy for us to say, you know what, I, I, don't have, I don't have any bitterness in my heart towards people or towards someone else. But then this is, where, this is where the evidence shows up is that the action of slander is the confirmation of that bitterness. Perhaps it might even come up as the question, hey, it seems like you're eager to present me an evil report about so-and-so. We know so-and-so. That person is an upright, godly man. Is there a root of bitterness in your heart? That's the diagnosis. That, that's the self-diagnosis. And then we have the, the sixth vice of malice, the desire to cause pain, suffering, injury, distress to another. That this is uh, a vengeful spirit. Malice is a vengeful spirit. And we have in Romans chapter 12 the warning that God is one who has a monopoly in the revenge business. 
that nobody else gets to compete with him. He will put out of business anyone who attempts to compete with him. It's his exclusive right, that of revenge. And as Christians, we ought to understand that for those who mistreat us, and it will happen, that God commands that we, would, we should return kindness and goodness to others, and that we ought to let him deal in the business of revenge. So this is the first point, put away all hatred. We have second point, put on love and forgiveness from verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Here, we address first this matter of a proper understanding of the depth of this problem. So in verse 31, he talks about the six vices of, of the family of hatred. And then 32, he talks about the opposite. Instead, to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So perhaps you're wondering at this point, yeah, I harbor ill will and animosity towards a few others. So does everyone else. What's your problem? Here, the problem is the Lord commands us to put those to death. That we, we cannot hide a morsel of, of fun under your tongue. People talk about how sweet revenge is. That's the world's teachings. That's not God's teachings. And I hope you understand this is not merely turning a new leaf, starting a new chapter of your life. Jeremiah thirteen twenty three. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. This is not, this is not God saying, oh, uh, for the common person, uh, you're going to stop this and start doing that. Oh, okay, stop this, start doing that. Okay, so here, this is not something that someone can simply decide. You know what, today I'm going to stop doing this, I'm going to start doing that. Titus makes it very clear what life is like. Titus 3.3 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is, this is the biblical summary of life outside of Christ. Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And you think about what, what friendship is. What friendship is in that life before Christ, outside of Christ. It's just people that you have mutual agreements, that you use them, they use you, you scratch their back, they scratch yours. And still, the same principles apply to them. It's just there's something you profit from them. So this new life in Christ, is, it's not talking about the need to make a radical makeover for your life. You, you think about some of these... Some of these uh, regular shows about complete makeovers, right? So, uh, no, 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 this, this is not, hey, you need to have a, a makeover. No, this is what God does. This is what God changes for us. <clears throat> you see that change in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The big change was not man saying, today I will a change in my life. The big change was when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. That is the change that marks your life 
in Christ. God showed you his kindness, his goodness, and his loving kindness in Jesus Christ. This is, this is the aha moment of suddenly there's new life. The one, I most, uh, the one I most hated, God in heaven, has become the new love of my life. Because while I was yet an enemy of Christ, he sent his son to die for me. This is the effective change in loving kindness that God has entered your life. That is what makes all the difference. And now we consider some of these positive commands. Be kind to one another. So this is not a selective kindness. I, I, I'm kind to certain people. I'm not kind to others. Hey, don't, don't the non-Christians even do that? Don't the wicked do that? We think about the very character of God. Luke chapter 6, verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. This is the very character of God. He doesn't discriminate in this way. Obviously, he shows kindness to his children, that he secures that kindness by covenant, but he does show kindness even to the wicked and the ungrateful. We can think about how the wicked even know how to be kind. They know how to be kind when it profits them. It's called the back-scratching exchange. But God calls you to be kind not for your profit and advancement, but rather because he commands it. Here we also have the matter of being tender-hearted. So be kind to one another, tender-hearted. This is being compassionate. This is, this is the uh, tender-hearted, meaning it comes from the bowels. It's not a surface feeling, it's a deep-rooted feeling. And perhaps at times, this becomes more of a challenge to those who have been Christians for long. I'll tell you why. Because within the church, oftentimes you come across phonies and pretenders, hypocrites, within the church. And this has a tendency to make people cynical. There's a cynicism that comes. And that oftentimes there can be, hey, I've heard that one before. I've heard that statement before. And so-and-so in the past who was a complete phony that he made the exact same statement, so you must be a phony. Well, at times, in our cynicism, we mistake the genuine weakness of God's people with the, the phonies and the fakes that we've seen in the church often. But here, we ought to remember that God's command was not, don't ever be duped by a fake. His command is to be tender-hearted. It means that at times, you're going to be burned. But isn't that part of life? He also commands us to be forgiving one another. We read earlier in Matthew chapter 18 that the parable of the unmerciful servant <coughs> began with Peter's question to Jesus. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Here, Peter, it's as if Peter was saying, hey, Seven times, as many as seven, as in seven is a whole lot. Peter's, Peter's expected response from his Jesus, okay, not seven. We'll keep it at two or three. So Peter was expecting a, a negative response of no, not that high. <clears throat> but rather Jesus' response was even higher. 
70 times 7, but here, this was not a, a game of, of a literal number. No, that, that wasn't Jesus' point. Here we think about the matter of forgiveness. Perhaps some are asking the question, well, it depends. Does he deserve to be forgiven? Well, here, we ask that, answer that question with another question, who deserves to be forgiven? So if you're asking the question, does he deserve to be forgiven? You're already asking the wrong question. You're in the wrong place. Well, someone will come back. Well, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. When I say deserve to be forgiven, do they have a repentant heart or do they have a hardened heart? Okay, well, that's a valid question. We should address that. We ought to remember that repentance before God, even if it were perfect, which it never is, repentance is never perfect, never can be perfect, even if repentance were perfect, it doesn't earn forgiveness. The fact that we're repentant of our sins before God, it's not a right. There, there's no claim of merit. That, that repentance, even perfect repentance, is not meritorious of forgiveness. And none of us have perfect repentance. Here, we also have to warn, even if the guilty party wants no part of repentance or, or wants no part of, of forgiveness, that they're not repentant. They refuse to meet. They continue to manifest hatred and animosity. Uh, at no point is, is malice and ill will from the one sinned against justified. Meaning, just because here we think about forgiveness, it's a situation where you have an exchange. The one offers forgiveness, one receives forgiveness, right? There's reconciliation. This is, this is the good thing that, that God has given. And especially in the church that this would happen. But just because someone refuses to repent and to be reconciled, it doesn't ever give us the right to harbor hatred. In that regard, there's not a completed transaction, there's not a completed exchange, but we ought to think about it as, for us, in that situation, forgiveness means all judgment is passed off to God. I, I, it's, not, it's not my duty to punish the person. This is malice being removed. That we should desire good, not harm for the person. That our prayer and desire should be repentance, a genuine change of heart. Here, we think about this phrase, which should bring up much in our thoughts. As God in Christ forgave you, or in another version, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. <clears throat> even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Here we think about how this term, for Christ's sake, it ought not to be used as an expletive, as a curse word. How often do you hear people say, hey, for Christ's sake? But when we think about this principle for Christ's sake, it's something that should move our hearts. Even as God in Christ forgave you. We think first regarding this phrase, even as God in Christ forgave you. We think about the basis of your forgiveness. It's a reminder to you and to me that you are not forgiven based on your own merits. It's not for your own sake that God forgives you. Think for a moment about dealing with people. That Let's say you, you say to your neighbor, you're knocking on his door, hey, can you do me this one favor? And, and the favor is not, uh, 
you know, I, I killed off all your family. Can you just do me this favor of forgiving me? No. That's not a favor. A favor is, hey, you want me to help you move your couch? I can help you do that. That's a favor. And you think about God, he doesn't do us a favor in forgiving us. No, not at all. This is, this is not something that's done as a... Forgiveness is not the part of God and doing a favor for sinners. He doesn't forgive us for our own sake. He forgives us because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. It's a reminder to us regarding how essential Christ is, and it completely kills any hint of a legal spirit in us. It at least should. If you and I are complaining about our just desserts, then the reality is we've completely missed the heart of the gospel. Think about this story that we read earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. The story of Mephibosheth. So David and Mephibosheth. And David's question in verse 1, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? You think about the love between Jonathan and David. They loved one another. We're told it was a love that was better than a husband and a wife's love. And don't read into that for a moment, for a second. Don't even go that place. This was a brotherly love. And there was a promise there. Jonathan understood God's favor is upon you. God has said that you will be king. And, and here, for Jonathan to say that, it was, hey, I'm Saul's son. And if there is a lineage, I should be next. But you know what? God wants you to rule, and I want you to rule too. Now, when you do rule, though, show kindness to my family. Here was Jonathan believing God's word will come true. My line has ended. Yours will continue forever as he's promised. Here, there was loss of life. David's asking the question, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? He asked Ziba, Ziba the servant, oh yeah, there's Mephibosheth. He's crippled in both feet. He's off there in Lodabar. David brings him, calls him Mephibosheth. And here, you can imagine a typical person in the Eastern world when you have one king. It, it's not as if you have one president who, who it's assumed in, in, in D.C. that uh, the old president, if he's still alive, he, he's supposed to leave D.C., right? This un, un, unspoken rule. And nobody dies. And for them, you have one king taken over by another king. No, nobody lives, right? It's assumed everyone is, is killed off. So Mephibosheth wondering, hey, I was hiding out, now I'm found. And here, he's expecting death, if anything. But yet, David says, hey, you're Jonathan's son. I will show you the kindness of God. Mephibosheth, as a cripple, understands he does not belong in a king's presence. He doesn't belong at the table of the king. If only it were so clear to you and to me that here Mephibosheth, as a, a physical cripple, that you and I, as spiritual crippled, spiritually dead, that we realize that we have no merits of our own. You think about how Mephibosheth, he asked the question, what do you have to do with a dead dog such as I? What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Mephibosheth rightly understood his place. David doesn't give him an answer, but the answer has entirely to do with Jonathan. 
I made a covenant with your father, Jonathan. There's nothing that you've merited from me. Because I love Jonathan, I will do this for you. Here, it's a reminder to us that forgiveness comes through a mediator. Through a mediator who is Jesus Christ. It's not because God is doing us a favor. It's not because we have any merits. We have none whatsoever. Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross. A full payment for your sins and mine. His perfect righteousness from a holy and sinless life that he lived. And both of these come to you by faith. That Jesus freely offers to you the forgiveness of sins. His perfect sacrifice on the cross. And his righteousness freely given to you. And the offer of the gospel is repent and believe upon Jesus Christ. So you ask, why is it that God forgives you? It's because of nothing that we've done. As God in Christ forgave you. That is the basis of your forgiveness. It is Christ's merit. It is Christ's perfect work. You can claim no merits of your own. I can claim no merits of my own. We have also the manner then. As God in Christ forgave you. Speaks about the manner of your forgiveness. Here. You will forgive others. As you believe God has forgiven you. That's a rule. If you think you have not sinned, then you, then you will do nothing to forgive others. If you think that you have sinned just a small amount, just a smidge, just a tad, then uh, God has forgiven you little, and you will forgive others just a smidge and just a tad. But if you believe yourself to be a great sinner... And that God has forgiven you lavishly and abundantly in Jesus Christ. Then you will be ready to forgive others abundantly also. He who is forgiven much loves much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Have you ever asked the question for yourself? How do you know that God has forgiven you in Christ? Perhaps there's two questions that should come up. The first is, have you repented of that sin? Have you forsaken it? Are you still cherishing that sin? Because if you are, then it sounds like, well, there's no hope for forgiveness. It's not not there. There, There's a repentance and a forsaking of that sin. That's the first matter. And the second question that comes up regarding, have you been forgiven by God, is, are you able and ready to forgive others? Because that's the very thing mentioned in Matthew chapter 18 the warning that comes at the end of that parable so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart here these words of Jesus is not saying forgive others so that you may be forgiven it's not If this, then that. It's not a cause and effect. But it's saying that if there's truly forgiveness that you've received, that is a changing, that is a changing of a life. Meaning that if you've come to understand the greatness of God's forgiveness, this should have a transforming effect in your life. Wow, this great debt has been removed from me. This burden has been taken off of me. No one thinks the same way again after that. 
Here we think about how this word could be of instruction to us. There is a necessary correction needed if at any time you come to have a just desserts attitude, any legal spirit that creeps in. I've heard it. I've seen it. It's very easy for this attitude to creep in even to the life of a Christian. If we're constantly demanding justice in dealing with men, how is it that we can plead for grace and mercy from our God? Those cannot go together. If we're pleading for mercy and grace from God, then there must be that same manner of dealing with others as God has dealt with us. Here, a very simple explanation, application of this. If you've struggled greatly with a particular sin, whatever that might be, whether in the past or even in the present, of all people, we should be sympathetic with people who also struggle with that sin. The legal, the Pharisaic response is to despise and look down on those people. The biblical and the, the gracious response is, I fully understand what it's like to struggle with that sin. And so I can extend grace even as I have received it. Here, it's a reminder to us regarding the just desserts attitude is that God never ever treats a sinner as his sins deserve. This is true for every non-Christian. No no non-Christian at the judgment seat can ever say to God, you know what? I've received an unfair treatment because God is is merciful even to non-Christians in that he doesn't give them exactly what their sins deserve when they deserve it. But how much more so that is true for you as a Christian? That God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. And we should be thankful for that. We think also of the transforming power of God's grace. For you, having heard and believed upon Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, your life cannot be the same. It must not be the same. Knowing the relief of having your burden of sins removed from you by Jesus Christ. This is something that must change you. The unforgiving servant dealt with debtors as if trying to extract out of others to pay his unpayable debt. He was trying to extract out of that person who owed him money so that he could, in due time, pay back his master. Here, You who are in Christ, instead, ought to live in gratitude as one who cannot pay back an unpayable debt that has already been paid by Jesus Christ. In how we live and how we act as Christians, we're not trying to pay back any debt anymore. We're only living out our gratitude to our master. Here, we think also about your testimony before a watching world. The world understands returning evil for evil. What it doesn't understand is putting away hate. It doesn't understand showing kindness to the wicked and to the ungrateful. Showing deference to those who use us and and try to harm us. But this is what God does. And this is what God expects of you and of me. Showing deference and working towards peace in the church 
This speaks volumes to a watching world. The world from outside looks in. How can people who are so different have anything in common? And why do you show such care for someone who is so different than you in age, in economic class, in uh, your background, in your occupations? They don't understand it. But it is a testimony, a great testimony to a watching world. Here, it's also a reminder to us that you and I ought to trust that God will settle all accounts perfectly on the last day. There's only two possibilities. Either the sinner will, will pay for an eternity for his sins, or the sinner has his debt paid in full by Jesus Christ. There's only two options. If it's the first category, the sinner will pay for an eternity, then the sin is accounted for. If it's the second option, that Christ paid his debt in full, then that is your same situation and you have no claim on that brother or sister. There's no room for personal revenge. You are drinking out of the same fountain of grace that the other brother is. That we must learn to show kindness. We must learn to show forgiveness to our brothers and sisters. Here we also have the treasuring of Jesus Christ. It is a deadly, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the true and the living God all by yourself. Be thankful for Jesus, for he is your one and only perfect mediator. That it is for Christ's sake that you have been forgiven. That we have one who stands in our place. He is the Lord Jesus. That you have one who has perfect righteousness that he freely gives to sinners. And he calls you to receive it by faith. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God.